Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 11, Episode 10, The Pax Edo. While it's natural that general narrative histories like this podcast tend to follow the political movers and shakers of the day, I always tried to take at least one episode to discuss broader trends in the social, cultural, and religious arenas. A few years ago, my daughters checked out a children's book of Japanese history from our local library. It broadly characterized many of Japan's historical periods. For example, the Heian period was the Age of Emperors, and the Kamakura and Muromachi periods were dubbed the Age of Warriors. The Edo period, however, was named the Age of Merchants. It may seem odd that an age in which warrior government reached its apex would be remembered as a time defined by its merchants, but there can be little doubt that domestic mercantilism exploded during the Edo period. We briefly discussed in the previous episode how Dutch botanist Engelbert Kampfer was amazed to see how busy the highways of Japan were during his own visit in 1702. Much of the traffic he witnessed was composed of traveling merchants and peddlers, delivering goods across domain boundaries to make a profit selling them somewhere else. But before we discuss the Edo period's mercantile economy, we should further investigate the caste system itself. The concept of a caste system in Japan predates the Tokugawa shogunate by several centuries. Back during the days of Ritsuryo, which was the government of the Heian period, there were broadly two castes, being the Ryomin, or good people, and Senmin, or low people. Ryomin was divided into four subcastes, and Senmin into five. Intermarriage between castes was not allowed, and occupations were supposed to be inherited from one's parents. During Sengoku Jidai, any pretensions toward enforcing a caste system were practically abandoned, though even at its apex, the Ashikaga shogunate had always had trouble enforcing supposed caste norms in the first place. Up-jumping peasants like Toyotomi Hideyoshi became somewhat commonplace, along with the phenomenon of Gekoku-jo, wherein subordinates could usurp or even outright replace their superiors under the right conditions. While the Sengoku period was a time of social mobility, the Tokugawa shogunate went to great lengths to ensure that such class crossing would be all but impossible in the future. For guidance and inspiration, the Edo shogunate used an old Chinese system of classification called Shinongongshang, which in Japanese is called Shinokosho. The literal English translation is Scholars, Farmers, Industry, Commerce but it is usually interpreted as the four categories of people, and sometimes as the four occupations. I will be calling it the four categories for short, because I think that description hues closer to reality. Above the four categories was the emperor and nobility, though that was obviously only on paper and did not reflect a political reality. Below the four categories were the eta and other untouchable groups whom we have already discussed. The category with the most vested political authority was obviously the samurai, though it is worth mentioning that they were also one of the least numerous. By the most generous estimates, members of the samurai caste composed no more than 6% of the population, though even that figure is somewhat misleading. 
While in previous centuries the term samurai indicated that one was a warrior by profession, it was transformed by the Tokugawa shogunate into a hereditary caste. This meant that you could only claim the title of samurai if your parents were samurai. However, not every samurai was happily employed by a prosperous daimyo. Many had been relegated to ronin status. We have already touched briefly on the ronin who found employment at martial training schools, but this was not the only avenue available to masterless members of the samurai caste. Some found employment as private guards for wealthy merchants, and others took up a trade and became artisans and craftspeople. In the 2011 film Harakiri, for example, the ronin protagonist makes umbrellas to earn money. Unemployed samurai often took up work as craftspeople for a few reasons. The creation of some crafts was frequently linked with the samurai, especially calligraphy, flower arranging, and painting. What had formerly been a hobby could, by necessity, become a trade. A more pressing reason, however, was that the samurai were, as a caste, forbidden from participating in many other professions. We discussed briefly how the Edo shogunate encouraged their hatamoto to relinquish their private fiefs and accept stipends instead. Daimyo nationwide followed suit, either seeing the wisdom in maintaining their own direct monopoly on farmland income or wanting to emulate the bakufu and thus avoid dangerous suspicion. As a result, very few samurai nationwide still directly controlled their own farmsteads and had largely been separated from the land itself, usually taking up residence in their daimyo's castle. Wanting to further balance the power of the samurai, the shogunate forbade them from engaging in commerce and from working the land as farmers. In his famous book Bushido, The Soul of Japan, Nitobe Inazo compares the embargo against samurai becoming merchants to similar measures against aristocratic mercantilism throughout medieval Western Europe. The bakufu's primary motivation in this embargo was to prevent any potential rivals from being able to accumulate wealth. Clans like the Soul clan of Tsushima and the Satsuma clan of southern Kyushu, who traded with Chosan and Ryukyu respectively, were generally expected to employ merchant middlemen to actually perform these exchanges. While the samurai caste was one of the least numerous of the four categories, the farmers were definitely the most numerous. Composing somewhere around 60-70% to of the population, the farmers handily outnumbered all the other castes combined. Obviously, this numerical advantage did not confer any political advantage whatsoever. The many sword hunts of Tokugawa Ieyasa and Toyo Tomohide Yosh before him had, in general, successfully disarmed the rural population, leaving them at the mercy of their samurai overlords. And just as the bakufu eyed the unemployed ronin with suspicion, they also put measures in place to ensure that a revolution could not emerge from the agrarian sector. Because the bakufu enforced a national peace, the amount of land available to use for cultivation increased, and the farmers themselves were incentivized to use that land for multiple seasonal crops throughout the year. The primary incentive was the punitive taxation leveled against the farmers by the government. In most places, these taxes amounted to at least 40% of the total food produced, and in some years that percentage was raised to 60%, and the rate itself was further dependent upon which crop was being taxed. The government saw the agrarian sector as their primary base of revenue, and they feared what might happen if the farmers were allowed to become too comfortable. Craftspeople during the Edo period also enjoyed their share of ups and downs. 
While the profit they gained from their creations was not taxed per se, it was subject to the fickle, invisible hand of the market. If the supplies they needed to create their goods became more expensive, either through genuine scarcity or merchant manipulation, the artisans' prices would need to rise as well. In the case of luxury goods, this probably did not have a large impact, but for everyday craft goods like cookware, sandals, umbrellas, or clothing, this could have a devastating effect on business at large. There was one commodity, however, which especially thrived during the Edo period thanks to the Dutch trade, fine ceramic dishware. The iconic blue and white ceramic ware of Ming China had, during the 15 and 1600s, become especially desired among the aristocracy of Europe. As Ming China collapsed under the weight of corruption, political splintering, and military mutinies, the demand for fine blue and white porcelain wares remained very high in Europe. Thus, Japanese ceramicists found a new niche for their craft by making imitation fine china by using similar techniques to those on the mainland and selling them to Dutch traders who would resell them for many times their costs back in Europe. Of particular note is the role that migrants played in the development of many Japanese crafts during the Edo period. When returning from their invasion of Korea, many samurai brought Korean artisans to Japan. Sometimes this was an enthusiastic choice among the craftspeople of Chosan, who feared reprisals as collaborators, but other times this was little more than legal kidnapping. However, throughout the 1600s as the Ming Dynasty was collapsing, as the Qing Dynasty gradually swallowed up its domains, many Chinese people fled to Taiwan, the Philippines, and Japan. Among the artisans in Japan who made imitation Ming porcelain goods was a fair number of Chinese immigrants who had discovered a way to earn fair money for their craft while keeping an artistic portion of their native culture alive in a new nation. This brings us at last to the merchants. The cast included small-time traders, traveling peddlers, and powerful mercantile concerns. While farmers were expected to pay exorbitant taxes, mercantile activity was not officially taxed at all. Writing that preceding sentence felt very strange, and saying it out loud just now seems nonsensical, but there it is. Commerce during the Edo period was not subjected to official taxation. Why didn't the shogunate levy taxes against commerce? The reasons are many, but they largely boil down to samurai prejudice. Merchants were considered the lowest of the four categories, and in samurai minds were probably little better than eta. They made profit from items which they did not make, and were thus thought of as parasites. In spite of how much the members of the shogunate may have personally disliked mercantile pursuits, however, even the most high-minded official had to acknowledge that such pursuits carried essential benefits for the nation. Artisans could not survive otherwise without a ready market for their goods, and not every region was able to grow enough food to sustain themselves. The laws of supply and demand had to be fulfilled by someone, even if profiting from that fulfillment seemed repugnant. Attentive listeners may have noted when I said earlier that there was no official taxation of commercial activity. The merchants who managed large trade coalitions interacted frequently with daimyo and other high-ranking regional and national officials, and occasionally those officials might strongly suggest that it would be so nice if the merchants made a voluntary offering to help shore up the clan treasury, the national revenue, or even just line the pockets of someone who might otherwise make their lives quite difficult. 
While the merchants may have been the bottom rung of the social caste system, their access to wealth and hard cash meant that they could not be ignored as a source of power. Moneylending became a valuable source of income for the wealthier merchant families, but forgiving large loans also had advantages of official samurai protection for their business interests. If the daimyo went into debt because of the expenditures required to keep the shogunate happy, a merchant house might front him the money and later forgive it for the sake of big-picture stability. There is a tendency when discussing the four categories caste system of oversimplification. Farmers are flattened into a large group of bent-backed soil tillers. Merchants are understood as wealthy trade barons. Artisans seen as tragic artists who eke out a meager living with whatever creativity they can muster, and the samurai portrayed as the brutal overlords keeping this system together through naked coercion. However, reality is far more nuanced, and it's best to avoid such reductive understandings. In modern times, there are small farms and large agricultural conglomerates, though the owners of either would be referred to as farmers. The same was true in Edo period Japan, albeit on a much smaller scale. All farms were not of equal size, and the holders of larger parcels wielded a considerable advantage over their smallholding neighbors. The smallholders typically needed to sell their labor in addition to working their own land, often renting children or other relatives to the larger farmholds in order to make ends meet. The peasant farmers themselves were tied to the land, a feature of the continual land surveys which registered people and their plots. Travel outside of one's domain was generally not allowed outside of extreme circumstances like a relative's death or a pilgrimage, and even then there was no guarantee that permission would be granted. Still, the large holding farmers frequently prospered throughout the Edo period, using the control they wielded over vast tracts of land to grow cash crops like cotton in addition to cereal grains. Just as not every farmer was performing backbreaking labor to ensure enough surplus for their family to barely survive, not every merchant commanded vast sums of money or even enjoyed reliable profit. Small-scale traveling merchants and peddlers were especially vulnerable to bandits, petty thieves, and the shifting whims of an unpredictable market. Craftspeople were likewise subject to the same market whims. Today's groundbreaking aesthetic trends often become tomorrow's weird, outdated fads. That being said, the artisans fortunate enough to live in Edo probably did very well, generally speaking. The shogunate's headquarters evolved into a thriving metropolis which boasted a population of one million by the early 1700s, making it the most populous city in the world at the time. The biennial visits from the daimyo around the nation and the residents of their families in the Bakufu city meant that the odds of finding a big spender or even a regular patron were much higher in Edo than they would be nearly anywhere else. However, daimyo patrons could be just as fickle as the market, and thus maintaining good relations with merchants often became more important. We will further discuss the arts of the early Edo period in greater detail in a future bonus episode. Urbanization, which had increased during the Azuchimomoyama period, continued to intensify throughout the Edo period. With this rising urban population came new opportunities for vendors of entertainments both benign and illicit. Although sex work has existed in Japan, and as far as I know, every other nation on the face of the planet, since time immemorial, the early Edo period witnessed the emergence of official red light districts. However, 
This was not meant as a broader acceptance of sex work, but rather as a regulation. Brothels had been a regular feature of most large Japanese cities since the 1400s, but the shogunate issued an edict in 1617 declaring that all brothels would be limited to a single district just outside the boundary of its respective city, an area which came to be known as the Yukaku. The Yukaku of Osaka became known as Shinmachi. In Kyoto, it was called Shimabara, and Edo itself hosted a yukaku called Yoshiwara. Because of the constant influx of people into Edo, brothels in Yoshiwara generally did pretty well business-wise. Originally located near the entrance to the city near the Tokaido Highway, it was often the first stop for well-to-do merchants, as well as samurai accompanying their daimyo on his Sankin Kotai year. Around each of the yukaku, walls were built to both discourage attempted escape by the sex workers and also to contain the brothels themselves so that they could more easily be inspected and taxed accordingly. The sex workers were generally not allowed to leave the districts unless they were visiting a dying relative, though they were collectively allowed to leave their yukakus once a year for the annual cherry blossom viewing. The sex workers themselves occupied a rung below the four official categories as hinin, or non-human, untouchables. Generally, these girls had been sold to the brothels by their parents, though sometimes they sold themselves into service to pay off their own debt. There was a licensing process, and unlicensed prostitution was a criminal offense. The licensing process also included a hierarchical ranking system. At the very top was the tayu though eventually they would be replaced by the Oiran. Factors in the ranking system included their skill with other entertainments like musical instruments and poetry. In general, female sex workers were referred to as yujo, a term which translates to pleasure woman. While the ladies who were made to perform sex work for visiting merchants, samurai, and other well-to-do johns probably had pretty difficult lives, their status as a sex worker was not permanent. When their debt was paid, they were free to leave if they liked, and some continued to stay on and earned a portion of their fee as pay. Because the yukakus were walled off from the rest of the city and the sex workers within were essentially imprisoned, people came to think of these red light districts as almost being separate realms entirely. They came to be referred to as the floating world. While you might be expecting that now, at long last, the geisha will emerge, you're going to need to wait until next season for geishas, at least as we know them, to finally make an appearance. There were people in this period referred to as geishas, however, but they were men who had trained extensively in the various arts and entertainments like playing musical instruments, singing, and performing traditional dances. The term geisha is, technically speaking, gender neutral. It simply means art person, and can comfortably be interpreted as performing artist. Throughout the 1600s, the yukakus became centers of entertainments far beyond sexual gratification, offering the services of such performing artists as entertainment for patrons, especially as a means to lure potential clients into the brothels that employed these male geishas. It is largely thanks to the efforts of female sex workers and other outcast women that a new form of theatrical performance emerged in Japan during the early Edo period, which remains popular to this day. In contrast with no, which relies on masks and is stuffed full of religious elements, the new form of theater largely revolved around raunchy comedy, lurid storylines, and outrageous situations. 
This new performance art was dubbed Kabuki, and it would grow to become one of the most popular and well-known theatrical styles in the nation. The creation of Kabuki is attributed to one Izumo Okuni, a miko or shrine maiden who organized the earliest performances on a dry riverbed which ran parallel to a well-traveled street in Kyoto in 1603. We will discuss her life and more of the specifics of Kabuki's founding in a future bonus episode. For its first few decades, Kabuki was performed by women, typically by sex workers, who used their performances in part to attract greater demand for their more private services. However, in 1629, Tokugawa Iemitsu banned the performance of women on the grounds that it promoted immorality and was too openly erotic. Historians frequently point to several other factors which played into the shogunate's ban. As kabuki became more popular, theaters were constructed to house paying audiences. Generally, the principle of general admission was followed, in which audience members would find their own seats, first come, first serve. This led to a mixing of the castes, as merchants, samurai, artisans, and peasants would sit among one another with little regard for propriety. The actors in kabuki plays would often dress in ostentatious costumes, sometimes in partnership with cloth merchants trying to promote the latest styles and encourage the wealthy among the audience to unnecessarily buy new clothes. Not dissuaded by the 1629 ban, theater owners began recruiting young male prostitutes to serve as actors, though the shogunate soon likewise banned young boys from participating in public performances. No doubt there was a larger policy issue at question here. The yukaku had been constructed as a separate space where sex work could occur discreetly, and while allowing the rest of Edo to pretend it didn't exist at all. For sex workers to so publicly parade around in garish costumes singing body songs while wearing wild face paint was tantamount to a challenge of the somewhat restrictive policies of the bakufu regarding sex work. Thus, the theater owners were forced to turn to the one group they could be reasonably certain wouldn't be restricted by the shogunate, adult men. Ironically, many of these actors also had side gigs as sex workers, many servicing both men and women clients. However, the government turned a blind eye for the moment, seemingly satisfied to allow Kabuki to continue as long as women and boys stayed off the stage. Because of its more casual atmosphere compared to No, Kabuki performances were often enjoyed by rowdy, randy audiences, who sometimes engaged in violent brawls with one another over their favorite actor, or at least, which was the most attractive. These fights became serious enough for the bakufu to ban the practice of men dressing as women on stage in 1652, but this was a short-lived embargo which was soon lifted. Kabuki would continue developing throughout the 16 and 1700s, being refined by subsequent generations and gradually shedding some of its rough edges. It was still, and remains today, a very exciting theatrical form of drama, music, comedy, ribaldry, and garish costumes with equally garish makeup. Although the Edo period certainly offered an expansive variety of pleasures, both carnal and otherwise, the samurai as a caste were still experiencing something of an identity crisis. The Sengoku period offered no shortage of employment for armed warriors, as well as opportunities for advancement, but what was the purpose of warriors in an age of peace? 
Because of the restrictions placed upon them by the shogunate, and because of the tendency of their liege lords to separate them from the land, many members of the warrior class experienced certain difficulties during the age which they and their forebears had fought to create. Even among employed samurai, stipends were often insufficient to tend to all their financial obligations, and because these stipends were fixed amounts, they did not keep pace with inflation. If the samurai with regular employment met with such difficulties, it's easy to imagine the desperate state of the ronin. Although technically allowed to carry the two swords that marked them as part of the samurai caste, ronin had few legal options available. They could become bodyguards or caravan guards, and were often hired by merchants and other well-to-do citizens to protect their private property. If they wanted to apply an artisanal trade, that avenue was open to them as well, but some were drawn to the allure and excitement of the growing world of gambling. Bakto, or traveling troops of gamblers, became a regular feature of life in Edo period Japan. The Bakuto groups would travel a regional circuit, stopping in towns, villages, and cities, and luring clients with an opportunity to become rich through games of chance. Generally, the games offered used either dice or hanafuda, traditional Japanese playing cards which feature flowers and other natural scenery. These games were often rigged, and in some cases these pop-up gambling dens were used by unscrupulous local government officials to win back a portion of the salaries they had just paid to the town's laborers. The Bakuto were forerunners to the modern-day Yakuza, but the origins of Japanese organized crime also extend to another group of traveling workers who gained recognition and expanded organization during the early Edo period. The various indigenous cults throughout Japan, which I will heretofore broadly refer to as Shinto, each had their own festival calendars which helped attract regional visitors and, for better-known shrines like Izumo and Issei, even far-off pilgrims seeking to touch the divine. These gatherings provided an opportunity for a certain lower class of traveling merchants referred to as tekiya, a word which roughly translates to peddler. The tekiya would open pop-up shops during these huge festivals and sell trinkets, tchotchkes, and other memorabilia to the visitors. In an effort to exert their own authority over religious events, the bakufu officially recognized the tekiya as a group and urged them to adopt a hierarchical organization. The tekiya obliged, and their higher-ranked members who acted as bosses became almost equivalent to the status of a samurai, being allowed to use a family name and carry two swords as a symbol of their authority and protection. The leaders of the tekiya groups were called oyabun, and their members referred to as kobun. Although generally they concerned themselves with collecting rents from those who operated stalls during festivals, their nature as traveling groups who controlled certain shrine circuits meant that they inevitably collided on occasion with other tekiya groups looking to expand their territory. Violence sometimes resulted over questions of which group was responsible for providing market services to which festival, and smaller tekiya groups sometimes paid larger groups for protection. When the tekiya and bakuto groups would merge to create the modern-day yakuza, they tended to use the business side of the bakuto, that is, providing gambling services and the requisite usury and other vices which follow, but would use the organization of the tekiya, having an oyabun boss and kobun members arranged in a strict hierarchy. 
we will continue to follow the development of both of these groups next season when certain other practices familiar to the modern-day Yakuza would emerge. Life during the early Edo period varied widely depending on where you were, which caste you belonged to, what occupation you worked, and on which side of the law you tended to live. It was an era of cheap entertainment, walled gardens of vice, strict hierarchy, but also artistic development, cultural change, and a tendency to understand contemporary values as firm pillars of Japanese tradition. Next time, we will return to the historical narrative as Tokugawa Ienobu steps into his uncle's shoes as the new shogun. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan.